0: Well, hello everyone. My name is Annika. I'm going to do the Bible reading for us this morning. We're reading uh, Psalm 15. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbour and casts no slur on others. Who despises a vile person but honours those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Uh, Well, it's great to see you here one more time at Trinity Church uh, Colonel Light Gardens. As you know, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide, and it's been a real privilege and delight to be with you these last three weeks here, uh, looking at some of these great Psalms from the Old Testament. Um, I trust you're really encouraged by uh, Laura Maddox's ES update before, and meeting a couple of our students, um, both Lindsay and Bianca. I trust that was a real encouragement for you as to what God is continuing to do on campus, uh, even in these strange and uncertain times. Um, As we begin, like every week, can I ask you please to take out your Bibles if you've not already got them open in front of you. Um, If you haven't had a chance to download the sermon outline, it'd be great to have that there as well, and you'll notice actually on the outline that the Bible passage is printed there in front of you, so if that's an extra incentive, uh, there's a couple of blanks for you to fill in on the outline as we go along too. Uh, The other thing to let you know is I got such a positive feedback about my really tacky night scope vision from last week that I've got more show and tell today because, yeah, as I said, why not make the most of it? Actually, I thought I might water the pot plant while I'm here, so there you go. I know some of you have been concerned about that over the last few weeks. Anyway, enough fooling around, uh, let's get into it. Uh, you'll see that I've headed this talk, The God Who Has Invited Us Over. Um, I, am, I actually spend quite a lot of time thinking about my talk titles each week. I don't know if you've noticed this, and it's quite okay if you don't, but this week's title is especially important, and I hope that will become obvious by the time we get to the end of the talk. Um, Given obviously lockdown restrictions, which you know, I'm recording on Wednesday, hopefully on Friday we'll have some good news, but who knows, nevertheless they're here for a while, I'm sure you can see the topical theme uh, behind my title, the God who has invited us over. I'm going to follow the same structure as I had the last couple of weeks, uh, firstly what Psalm 15 tells us about God and what he is like, uh, then second how it points us towards Jesus, and then thirdly and finally what it might ask of us today. So here we go then, point one, what Psalm 15 says about God. Uh, Like Psalms 13 and 14, um, it's in two parts. It begins with a pretty blunt and to the point question in verse one. And the second part is David's longer and much more searching answer in verses two through five. So let's pick it up then in verse one. Verse one, Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? As in the previous two Psalms, David wastes no time in setting up the problem. If you remember, Psalm 13 began, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And Psalm 14 began with, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Uh, David is using here in verse 1 two powerful images to describe the significance of coming into God's presence. He speaks of the tent, uh, and that takes us all the way back to Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. But he also speaks of the mountain. And at this point, I think he's pointing us towards Zion, to the city of David, the city of God, in fact. Uh, Psalm 48 will go on to describe Zion As being the joy of all the earth. And so, one level after verse one, we might find ourselves saying, Well, look, that all sounds pretty good. Where's the problem? Well, that actually lies in the two adjectives that David has chosen to describe that place where we can come before God. Did you notice? The sacred tent and the holy mountain. Sacred tent and holy mountain. Now, one level, even the way in which verse 1 is framed, suggests that there are going to be complications. Uh, Who may dwell? Who may live? I think they're warnings against us being too casual, of assuming that when it comes to God's place, we can just saunter in on demand. But it's particularly those words sacred and holy that remind us that the Lord is pure and perfect in every way that you and I are not. And that's deeply problematic, because the Bible consistently says that if we were to draw near to God, then, and this is to use a metaphor I know we're all familiar with, if we were to draw near to God, then we would be the contaminant. We would be the contagion. And so it's for that reason that the Bible insists we have no place in his presence. Think, for example, of Isaiah's woe is me lament when he finds himself in the temple. Or Joshua prostrate before the commander of the army of the Lord. Or Moses cowering before the not burning bush. In each of these incidents, they are not casual they are totally overwhelmed by the prospect of us sinners before a holy and righteous God. And so after verse 1, we're actually left wondering if the answer to David's opening question, you know, who may dwell in your sacred place, uh, who may live on your holy mountain, we're actually wondering if the answer is no one. Is David saying that our sin is insurmountable. Well, let's see how he resolved the problem then in verses 2 through 5. Psalm 15, verse 2. Let me read it. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbour and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, But honours those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Well, what's David doing? He seems to be giving an extensive list of requirements for what you and I must do to be admitted into God's presence. Although, if I can flag where I'm going with this talk, I'm going to ask if that's actually the right way for us to read verses two through five. Before we get get there, let me just make three comments about this list in verses two through five. Three three brief comments. Firstly, uh, there are different ways to categorise these requirements, but all of them express just how comprehensive the list is. So, for example, you could look at them as a series of do's and don'ts. Take, for example, verse 2. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart. There are some things he must do. On the other hand, verse 3, the one whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbour, who casts no slur on others. Do's and don'ts. Or perhaps a different way of looking at the list um, is to observe that sometimes it's about not just avoiding evil but actually proactively seeking to bless others. So, for example, look at verse 3 and the second line there. Uh, The one who does no wrong to a neighbour, that's avoiding evil, but that's not enough. Verse 5, the first part of verse 5, who lends money to the poor without interest? Someone who takes initiative to be a blessing to others. It's interesting to notice that there's an emphasis on being willing to stand up for what is right, Uh, even if that comes at personal cost. So, for example, verse 4, who despises a vile person but honours those who fear the Lord. And there's also an emphasis on conduct in private, how you act when no one but God sees. So, for example, verse 4, third line, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. And does not change their mind, or verse 5, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So the first observation is there are different ways of describing or uh, grouping these characteristics, but they're all comprehensive in nature. A second observation um, it's interesting that in verses 2 through 5, there's absolutely no reference to religious practices. No reference to religious practices as a requirement to enter into God's presence. There's no mention of offering sacrifices, no mention of tithing, no mention of serving on ministry teams, if I were to give a modern day equivalent. Now, don't get me wrong, those things are important. But verses 2 through 5, I think, are a reminder that God sees the whole of our lives, He sees what we do Monday through Saturday. Not just on Sunday in church. As we saw last week, it's an example of how the vertical, our relationship with God, shapes the horizontal. The two are intrinsically connected. And if I can offer a personal testimony at this point, uh, that realization, that realization that God sees the whole of life, uh, well, that's why I became a Christian in my mid teens. You see, after years of really faithful, patient Sunday school teaching and instruction from those who gave their time to tell me about Jesus, after years, I finally understood that Christ needed to be more than my Saviour on Sunday mornings. His sacrifice demanded that he be my Lord every day of the week. And the third and uh, I guess brief observation about that list in verses two through five is that if I can put it this way um, most of those qualities they are universally applicable they are universally applicable they're not tied to specific circumstances that could apply to anyone in society regardless of their socioeconomic status or their station in life uh, Perhaps the one exception is verse 5, who lends money to the poor without interest. I suppose if you are the very poorest person in society, you'd be the only person who do, to whom that doesn't apply. But for pretty much all of us, there is someone who is always less well-off than we are. Well, let me pause and ask you then, how do you feel when you read the list in verses 2 through 5? How do you feel when you read the list in verses 2 through 5? Now, partly your answer, I suspect, will depend on who you think the list is being applied to. You see, if the list is being applied to others, then, well, actually, quite frankly, I'd love to have those kinds of people in my house because I'd love to have those kinds of people in my life. But, of course, if verses 2 through 5 are applied to us, Well, this is where it gets tricky. It gets tricky because the list is so comprehensive, and then we remember just how inadequate we are in comparison. Do you remember what we saw last week in Psalm 14? It's kind of hard to forget, wasn't it? All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that, I think, leads us to one of two responses to Psalm 15, neither of which, to be honest, are particularly positive. So one response is, having read this list in verses 2 through 5, you just end up feeling guilty and depressed. I can't do all those things. Actually, who on earth could? This, I think, is likely for those of us who are very sensitive to our failures and our inadequacies. Of course, the other response is not particularly positive either. The other response, as opposed to guilt and depression, the other response would be, well, what I would call apathy and denial. To say, sure, that's a pretty big list in verses 2 through 5, but that's no problem for me. I'm a pretty good bloke after all. Can I say that that's not how the Bible describes God's assessment of us? My usual response when someone insists, you know, I'm not a sinner, is to say, well, you've just lied, so welcome to the club. How we answer the question, how do you feel about reading verses 2 through 5, is often conditioned, I think, by our default personality, by the way in which we look at the world as a whole. And that means, I think, that the more important question posed by verses 2 through 5 is not How do I feel when I read the list? The more important question is, what's the purpose of the list? What's the purpose of all of these characteristics described in verses 2 through 5? And uh, here's my big idea for the talk today. My big idea is that the purpose of verses 2 through 5 is not to answer the question, how do I get in the front door of God's place? Rather, it's there to show the way we live once we're inside. And in fact, you'll see I printed that right in the middle of your handout. You can't miss it. How do I get in the front door? Or the way we live once we're inside. And in fact, if you've had the time to print out the handout, you'll see I've actually printed check boxes on there. Put a big cross against the first one and a big tick against the second Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because of the way that Psalm 15 finishes. Do you you recall? The very last line David finishes, having gone through this extraordinary list of requirements, apparently, to enter into God's house, David finishes verse uh, verse 5, whoever does these things will never be shaken. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. I think it's really significant the way in which David has expressed that. I think the clear implication is that we have already been invited in. We have already come into God's sacred tent to his holy mountain. And so presumably David thinks it's possible to live in the way in which Psalm 15 describes. Otherwise, listing all those requirements will only serve to prove our unworthiness. The result would be that I think David would be setting an impossibly high standard, a bar so high no one could possibly reach, which means in the end Psalm 15 is nothing more than a cruel hoax that doesn't offer any real hope. Instead, if the purpose of Psalm 15 is to show us how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of God how to conduct ourselves in a manner befitting of our hosts when he invites us into his home. Well, I think that leads to a third response, a much better response, in fact. See, not denial, not wallowing in denial or feeling depressed, rather being really, really excited about the prospect of pleasing God, of even enjoying being in his presence. So what I'm saying is that Psalm 15 is not just a guilt-inducing diagnostic tool that exposes all of our shortcomings. Rather, Psalm 15, I think, is meant to be a liberating life guide a liberating life guide to show us how to live in a manner befitting those in God's household. Now, let me just acknowledge and that I realise that in putting it that way around, actually some of us here who are Christians, some of us with very tender consciences, are actually thinking at that point, oh, thanks a lot, Jeff. Uh, there's yet another way in which I haven't lived up to God's standard." That's not my intention, because I don't think that's what Psalm 15 is trying to do. See, hopefully what I'm saying today helps us to avoid the mistake of making the Old Testament law nothing more than a rule book designed to highlight our failures, and only after that to lead us to the forgiveness that's found in Christ. bunch of reasons why i don't think that one of that is that it sets up i think a really unhelpful uh, dichotomy or distinction between the the god we meet in the old testament who just sounds quite frankly mean and nasty whereas the god of the new testament jesus he's the one who loves us that's clearly not the right way to look at the the whole of the scriptures and please don't mishear me we'll see that jesus does provide that forgiveness because only he can But what I want to say today is that the law is so much more than just that. In a moment, I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 19, which I've printed there on your handout. I'm going to read them because, just a few psalms later, Psalm 19 will wax lyrical about how good and liberating and wonderful God's commands are. And when you hear them, well, My point is that anyone who can say this thinks that living God's way is not some terrible burden we can't bear. Rather, it's a wonderful blessing. Have a look there. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. What a wonderful way to describe God's law. More precious than gold, sweeter than honey. And I wonder if this is how David can still say in verse 5, whoever does these things will never be shaken. This from the man who will confess his wretched sinfulness in Psalm 51. Well, that's point one, what Psalm 15 says about God. Let me move more quickly then through points two and three. How does it point us to Jesus? And then what does it ask of us today? How does Psalm 15 point us to Jesus? Uh, Well, Because Jesus brings us a much fuller revelation of God than David ever knew. Uh, As in each week, there's a number of different ways. Let me just briefly mention a couple. Uh, Jesus, I think, actually raises the bar even higher than Psalm 15. Uh, If you remember the Good Samaritan and Jesus' answer to the, who is my neighbour, it's not just those I like, but even those who are sworn enemies. But thankfully, it's Jesus who does keep all of these commands, the ones in Psalm 15 and beyond, and keeps them in a way in which you and I cannot. Of course, the reason he does so is that he might enter God's house and usher us in as well. It's as if, having kept all the requirements of the law, Jesus is the one who is first admitted and then says to the bouncer at the gate, Uh, it's okay, this one's with me. You can let him or her in as well. Uh, I think that's the point of Jesus' image in John 14, about going ahead to his father's house to prepare a room for each one of us as well. Uh, Psalm 15 also points, I think, to Jesus because it's Jesus who assures us that we can please our God There are lots of different ways I could show this, but actually the one I just want to mention in passing is the famous parable of the talents or the bags of gold. You know, the one with the master who goes away and leaves three servants in charge of his various possessions and comes back and holds them to account? Now, rightly, we focus on the third servant, the one who has failed to act in a way that's pleasing to his master, but do you know what? The first two servants actually did the right thing, and they were blessed for it. But perhaps the final way, I think, in which Psalm 15 points us to Jesus is with the reminder that the Holy Spirit um, is in each of us individually. You recall that last week we saw that one of God's kindnesses is the gift of the Holy Spirit to us, to his people, 1 Corinthians 3. We'll take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 19. Print it on your handout. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. The reason why I've mentioned 1 Corinthians 6 is because even if you and I feel that we are not worthy to be in God's house, God, by his Spirit, has taken up residence in us. Well, what Psalm 15 says about God, how it points us to Jesus, let me finish then just with a very brief reflection on what it asks of us today. Uh, Back to my big idea again. Um, Psalm 15, I think, is not so much about all the things you must do to secure an invitation into God's presence. Rather, Psalm 15 is about how we are to live once we're inside and already belong. And that's why I said that the title of the talk was particularly carefully chosen this week. You see, I didn't call the talk the God who invites us over, but rather the God who has invited us inside already. Because I trust you can see that there's a world of difference in how you interpret Psalm 15. Either as someone who's desperately trying to meet the entry requirements, never quite certain that you've done enough, or someone who is confidently and joyfully intending to live a particular way in God's house because He's already welcomed us in. There is a world of difference between those two. Uh, I think if I can give a parallel, as in our friendships. All of us can tell the difference between someone who says, if I do this, will you be my friend? And someone who says, because you are my friend, I will treat you this way. How do we help that point to stick as we go from here this week? Well, show and tell time. Uh, Here we go. How do I help us to remember that Psalm 15 is not meant to be just a guilt-inducing diagnostic tool, but a liberating life guide? How do I help us to remember that Psalm 15 is not just a damning list of entry requirements, uh, kind of like a dress code outside a nightclub, but instead a reminder of how we live inside our home? Well, to do this, what I did was I asked around my colleagues on the staff team at Trinity City where I work, if anyone had one of those great tapestries or wall hangings that you see inside people's houses about how we live now. Thankfully, someone did. You've no doubt seen this kind of thing. House rules, always be polite, be thankful, love your family. It should say, listen to your parents, um, respect each other, be grateful, those kinds of things. This is the kind of thing that you put inside the house. You don't nail it to the front door as a warning to everyone before they come in. Do you know one of the things I was really thrilled to discover this week as I thought about it was that um, in the church that I go to, Trinity Church Adelaide, on North Terrace, you know, the big old stone building, we've got the Ten Commandments on a board. It won't surprise you, that board is inside the church, it's not out facing the street. If you're here today, if you've logged on and found your way to this online church service and you're someone who's not a believer, then to add my welcome to that that you heard before, uh, we're really glad that you've given some time with us. I wonder if what you've heard this morning might perhaps recast God in a more positive light for you. See, Psalm 15 is describing a God who longs for us to come to him. In fact, he's gone to incredible lengths to bring us in. He sent his own son to come and get us. His son, whose death was necessary to bring us life. Now, I get that in just saying that. You might be thinking, well, how does that work? How is that possible? Can I encourage you? Stick around afterwards and perhaps ask, or even better, Come along to the life course that you've heard about already. This is one of the ways in which this church tries to help explain to people ultimately who Jesus is and why he's someone who is worthy of your investigation and your life. If you're someone who's not a Christian, can I say this is the kind of community that Christians aspire to create? See, a Christian community or a church is just the sum of a whole bunch of people trying to live the way in which Psalm 15 describes. And if I can put it this way, Psalm 15 describes how the members of this church are committed to treating you because the vertical always shapes the horizontal. And yes, of course, they're not perfect, but at least they're trying. If you are a believer, then what I'd like to say to you today from Psalm 15 is rejoice. Rejoice. You can please God more and more. I found myself thinking about this this week. Uh, here's an illustration that perhaps might confirm for us how we're to live before God in this most holy and sacred place. In, if I can put it this way, in the rarefied air of God's throne room. I found myself wondering what it would be like if you were invited for tea at Buckingham Palace. My guess is that if you were fortunate enough to receive such an invitation, then you'd want to know the protocols for how to act and behave, how to address the queen, when you ought to sit and stand, What topics of conversation you should or should not raise? Which of the 17 knives and forks you're meant to use at which particular time? My guess is you'd want to know those protocols because if you follow them, you can actually start to relax and enjoy yourself, unafraid that you'll be kicked out. I printed for you near the bottom of the page page, a discussion question. It picks up on one aspect of of what it looks like to live in God's house from Psalm 15. It's on what I think is, to be honest, the hardest aspect, on how we act when no one but God sees us. The question there for discussion, what decisions will you make in private which no one else sees or knows about? Because these are the hardest ones to make. What decisions will you make in private, which no one else sees or knows about? They might be the choices you make at work when no one's around. They might be the choices you make in your bedroom at night, when you're alone and online. They might be the choices and decisions you make with your friends, maybe with your special friend, when it looks as if no one else can see. But what Psalm 15 asks us is, how, knowing the way in which God would have us live in his house, how might we do that? Let me conclude. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, very bottom of your handout. Paul says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, and in fact you are living. Sorry, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus' to do this more and more. This is what we aspire to. And even if we don't always reach that lofty standard, we don't give up trying because this is the way we live in God's house. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the invitation that you have granted us, that you've extended to us to come into your presence because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that, having invited us over, you show us how we might live in a way that is pleasing to you and glorifying to your Son. So in this week ahead, we pray, give us courage and wisdom and patience and everything that we need to do those good works that you've prepared for us in advance to do. Amen.